Ranieri and Co. This episode contains language that may be offensive to some listeners. Ebenheim's computer hacking caused havoc to the organizations he targeted and that he delighted in the disruption he caused. When the Realm Hackers appeared in a Melbourne court in 1989, it was a big story, the first of its kind. A group of hackers known as the Realm. They were arrested after federal police acted on information from the US Secret Service. The TV news also picked up on Phoenix's desire for notoriety. Bragged to the US press about what he'd done. He said it was clear he was not only seeking, but reveling in the publicity he received in the US. It turns out that Phoenix's desire to be famous was pivotal in the realm's downfall. Making it into the New York Times and even aiming for the cover of Newsweek. That's true. And this was another aspect to the realm and speaks to the different personalities of its members. Remember John Markoff, the computer tech writer at the New York Times? Well, John's contacts were telling him about a lot of hacker activity, so much activity that they suspected some automated program, another worm. He wrote an article about it. It wasn't a big story. It appeared on page 12. Anyway, the American hacker Eric Bloodaxe read it, and he knew straight away it was about the realm. He called his Australian friend Phoenix and told him about the article. Now, someone who read your article was Eric Bloodaxe. Do you, do you know that name? Oh, God, I remember the name Eric Bloodaxe. Yes. Chris Goggins is his name. Yes. I'll just read this to you. He read a line to Phoenix of your article, um, and it wrote, A computer intruder has written a program that has entered dozens of computers in a nationwide network in recent weeks, automatically stealing electronic documents containing usernames, passwords, and erasing files to help conceal itself. Now, the Australian hacker Phoenix found that hilarious. Do you know why? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's a little bit like um, you know, the war between the you know, guy with the hammer and the guy with the jackhammer. The, that I thought that I thought because I had been told apparently by some computer security people who believed this was an automated intrusion. And so because of the Moore's worm, which was automated and had broken into tens of thousands of computers on the internet, I thought, well, this, this is happening again. And that was my first story, but um, it was wrong. Uh, it was these kids who had a lot of free time um, doing the same thing. Phoenix needed to set the record straight. He wasn't about to let an automated worm take credit for his hard work. He had spent days manually hacking each site individually. So he got in touch with John on the 21st of March, 1990. But not as Phoenix, and not his real name, Nashon, either. I think he called himself Dave. Was that how he introduced himself to me? David Lissack. And that's what Australian Federal Police Officer Bill Apro heard when he was listening in on the phone call. It was also the name the Secret Service had when they first approached the AFP for details. Bill Apro. The only name they had was Phoenix and another one, David Lissick, which ended up being Phoenix's old teacher. That's why he used this name. I mean, he's putting the teacher in... in trouble. To John Markoff, Phoenix, or Dave, knew what he was talking about. He had enough detailed information, I think I believed him. So yes, he told me that it was him, and I I reported that this guy was taunting the computer security experts. And while Phoenix was talking to John, the AFP were listening. It used to be the security guys chasing the hackers, now it's the hackers chasing the security guys. The phone call worked. 
And a reminder that we've used actors to read the words of these hackers based on the AFP's phone taps. I'm nearly being extradited. I made the front cover of the New York Times. John wrote a follow-up article which made it to page one on the 21st of March 1990 with the headline... Caller says he broke computers' barriers to taunt the experts. The day before this second article hit the stands, Bloodax told Phoenix his work had also been reported locally in the 6 o'clock evening news. But it wasn't the lead story. Phoenix replied... Oh well, can't win them all. Later, he told Electron... Do you think we'll get the cover of Newsweek or Time? I doubt it. I'll demand it, fuck it. We're going to get the cover of Newsweek. I want to do it. It's a lot of fun. We're going to get busted. We're going to get busted. I want a decent sleep first. Fuck off. I'm trying to figure out what we should do next. Do you want to sleep? What would be a really big target which would clinch it and really get us life? Loneliness is indicative of modern society. It affects everyone at some point. It's part of the human condition. Thanks to Medibank, We Are Lonely is a podcast that seeks to demystify loneliness. Follow the journey of four diverse 20-somethings on their search for connection. Young Australians have never been more lonely, yet loneliness is rarely discussed and often misunderstood. Season two of the We Are Lonely podcast is part of Medibank's 10-year commitment to reduce chronic loneliness in Australia. We Are Lonely is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. Search for We Are Lonely and listen today. This is Motherload an original podcast from Ranieri & Co about the early days of computer hacking in what was then an epicentre, Melbourne, Australia. A world where hackers pushed the boundaries and gave rise to the most notorious hacker of this century, Julian Assange. I'm Greg Muller and this was all happening in my hometown. Loading episode four. The party's over. According to journalist and IT specialist Sulet Dreyfus, this interaction with John Markov demonstrates just how different Phoenix and Electron were. Uh, yes, I think it would be a, a understatement to say that Phoenix was an attention hound. And that wasn't Electron, though? Oh, no. No, no. He didn't feel the need to brag about exploits um, beyond an immediate group of two or three people. That was plenty. Phoenix felt the need to get wider recognition of how good he was. Electron wouldn't have rung up the New York Times, for example, to correct. Electron was horrified, horrified, when Phoenix rang up the New York Times. He really took some distance from Phoenix at that point because he realised that here was a guy driven by ego and that being driven by ego in this game was dangerous. It seems possible that John's article pushed things along and increased the pressure on Australian authorities to act. Not long after, the hackers were raided by the federal police. Well, after the fact, absolutely. I mean, I I think I wrote a third article after the kids were arrested. During the carrying out of your operations, you, Evan Haim, used the code name Phoenix, and you, Woodcock, used NOM, sometimes God. The two of you and your co-accused, Jones, codenamed Electron, and another person, codenamed Force, formed yourselves into a loose association of hackers. They're the words of His Honour Judge Smith from the Victorian County Court in October 1993. You refer to yourselves collectively as the realm. 
The three members of the realm who were charged, Phoenix, Electron and Nom, were finally being sentenced for their hacking activities. They'd proven themselves on the world stage and had put Melbourne on the map when it came to hacking. But now, what would the courts do? This was a test case. No one in Australia had faced these charges before. With computers limited to text and very slow dial-up modems, the Realm hackers had shown tremendous skill. For fun, for the adventure, for notoriety, for ideology. Depends on who you talk to. But they did push the boundaries and showed just what the humble home computer was capable of. Three years on from the raids on the hackers' homes in Melbourne, Phoenix, Electron and Nom were sentenced. It was a complicated case to build. The AFP were dealing with crimes never before prosecuted, and they had to be thorough. For the hackers, it was an excruciating wait. Electron just wanted it all to be over. He'd had a few rough years personally, a death in the family and mental illness, and there was no way of him knowing what penalty to expect. The hackers had pissed off some very powerful institutions, but then again, they hadn't really done any damage. There were lengthy maximum sentences attached to these offences, but would they really go to jail? And to add to the stress, Electron didn't like being in the limelight, and this case attracted a lot of attention. From the record of interview on the night he was arrested in 1990, Electron told police... Well, basically, it is not for any personal gain or anything. It's just a kick of getting into a system. I mean, once you're in... You very often get bored, and even though you can still access the system, you may never call back because once you've got into it, it's a challenge over, and you don't really care much about it. Basically with him, it's a hot challenge thing trying to do things that other people are also trying to do but cannot. Electron's lack of swagger would play well for him when he appeared in court. Electron is a much quieter sort. He's a walk softly and carry a big stick type. And his humour is very subtle, very understated, very wry. It very much reflects, you know, the kind of person that he is. Confronted with the police case against him, including the reams of evidence Bill Apro and his AFP team had gathered, Electron pleaded guilty to all charges. He was sentenced on the 3rd of June, 1993. Electron arrived in court, long hair pulled back into a ponytail and round John Lennon-style sunglasses. You've pleaded guilty to 14 counts of what might conveniently be described as hacking. That part of the act came into operation as recently as the 30th of June 1989. That's just 10 months before they were arrested. For the purposes of conducting your activities, you use the codename Electron, And I was told you gained some notoriety with the international computer community as a result of your activities. These offences are of a highly serious nature. They attracted a maximum penalty of two years' imprisonment. And a fine of $60,000, or both. Electron was convicted of erasing and altering stored data on computers and unlawfully accessing computers via a Commonwealth facility, that is, the phone lines. You gained unauthorised access to data stored in various computers at the University of Melbourne, universities in Finland, the United States, the Naval Research Laboratories in Washington, D.C. and NASA, USA, as well as the CSIRO in Victoria and the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory in California, United States. It was a long list. You have cooperated with the authorities. You made a full confession. You have demonstrated remorse. 
Electron also improved his chances of avoiding jail time by turning on his co-accused. You've also made a witness statement in the prosecution of two other individuals who have also been charged in connection with these matters and who are awaiting trial. So I think it would be fair to say that Electron turned Crown Witness because he viewed Phoenix as taking ridiculous risks for no reason other than pampering his own ego. And that those risks were reckless not only with Phoenix's life, but with Electron's life um, and Noam's life. And, and that that was not okay because it was not a good reason to, to do that. You know, he did not want to spend long years in prison. He didn't know exactly what was in store for him. You know, and, and I think if he felt there was some nobility in Phoenix, he might have been much more willing to go to the mat for him. Electron was willing to protect people and go to the mat for other people, just not for Phoenix. And it certainly worked in his favour when it came to sentencing. These are significant mitigating factors in your case. Electron's hacking was even presented as a health issue. You quickly retreated into what has been described as an artificial world of electronic impulses. You became totally obsessed with the operation of your computer. It was said by your counsel that you became addicted to it, in much the same way as an alcoholic becomes addicted to the bottle. Judge Smith seemed to have trouble deciding the seriousness of the crime. It's always difficult for a judge when there's no precedent. On the one hand... Fortunately for you, no harm or any consequences appears to have befallen the operators of any of the systems which you targeted. Then on the other hand... In my view, a custodial sentence is appropriate. You did gain unauthorised use of network user identifiers and that on your own admission you gained something between $1,000 and $10,000 in free service. But... You have no previous convictions and accordingly, apart from the matters now before me, you have an unblemished record. Looking good for Electron. However, just before passing sentence, the judge said... Our society is being increasingly served by and dependent upon the use of computer technology. Conduct of this kind in which you engaged poses a threat to the usefulness of that technology. Judge Smith then mentions the 23-year-old was in his final year of uni, had good prospects of rehabilitation, which would be hampered by a stint in prison. It was hard to know which way he'd go. You are sentenced to a term of six months, commencing on the 3rd of June, 1993. I direct by order that you be released forthwith upon you giving security by recognizance in each instance in the sum of $500 to be of good behaviour for a term of six months. No jail time. Electron had to do 300 hours of unpaid community work, regular contact with a community corrections officer and continue with psychological treatment. Judge Smith went on. I want to say this to you. I hope that from out of all this, you will have learnt a very valuable lesson. That you now have a full appreciation of the potential danger to our community which your kind of activity presents. I hope that you will, in the future, use your very obvious and considerable talents to enhance the welfare of society and not to harm it. And just before the judge left the courtroom, he turned again to Electron once more. I hope, Mr Jones, you'll remember what I told you earlier. Yes, Your Honour. 
particularly that you use your talents for the benefit of society, not to its detriment. The next day, a Melbourne newspaper ran the headline, Bond for Hacker, who hacked NASA. We did manage to get a message to Electron, asking him to be involved in this podcast. The reply, through a third party, was that he's emphatically not interested in bringing any of it up again. One of the 47 charges facing Nash and Ebenheim relate to offences committed in the United States. Four months later, it was Phoenix and Nom's turn. Nash and Ebenheim was only 18 when he hacked into the NASA computer system in the United States. Over a one-month period in 1990, he hacked into computers at five other American institutions, including the University of California at Berkeley. Phoenix, with a respectable short haircut, shirt and tie, also fronted up to Judge Smith. Nashon Evanheim and David Woodcock, you have each pleaded guilty to a number of offences, conveniently referred to as computer hacking offences. Phoenix pleaded guilty to 15 charges, including altering data stored on a computer and the alteration of a password file on a NASA computer. Other charges involved inserting what's called a shell into a computer at the University of California in Berkeley. Nom, real name David Woodcock, pleaded guilty to two counts. In both counts, his involvement was in the commission of an offence by Phoenix. One charge, which got a special mention, involved hacking Execucom Systems Corporation in Texas. Another expert witness, System Administrator Dwayne Hanais, said he worked 430 extra hours in two months looking for damage from Phoenix's hacks. This is where the substantial cost comes in. This hack is an interesting example because we have two versions of the story, and it helps explain how difficult it was putting this podcast together. In the book Underground by Sulet Dreyfus and Julian Assange, this incident involving Execucom is described as... Phoenix had accidentally deleted a Texas-based company's inventory of assets, the only copy in existence according to Execucom Systems. However, documents filed to the court on behalf of the prosecution described the same incident like this. He then proceeded to erase the entire inventory record of all assets that related to Execucom Systems Corporation. You can see the difference. The first version, Phoenix accidentally deleted, and in the second version, he proceeded to erase curious explorers, or criminals. We know a fair bit about this hack from the AFP phone taps. It goes like this. Phoenix spoke to American hacker Eric Bloodaxe on the 22nd of February, two days before this hack took place. Bloodaxe told Phoenix... All right, I'm just telling you so they don't freak out at you, because I want... There are serious things I want to do to that place. There was some talk about what type of business this was, and then Phoenix said... I know exactly who their competitors are. Geez. Oh, here's what I was thinking. Get on their systems and take every single bit of source code and developmental software they have and sell it to their opponents. Yeah, we could do that, or we could do two things. We could sell it to their opponent, but before selling it, invest big on what we think Execucom are going to do. But yeah, selling it to their opponents should net us a huge sum of money. Evanheim had bragged to his friends about the penalties attached to hacking NASA and had referred to the big sums of money that could be made by selling information. All but one of the charges faced by Phoenix involved accessing computer systems overseas. 
He did this by either obtaining free overseas phone time by quoting network user identification numbers or NUIs from legitimate subscribers, or using American AT&T telephone card numbers issued to subscribers. This gave him access to thousands of hours of free international calls. Phoenix argued he was pointing out weaknesses in computer systems, and like previous attempts to use this argument, Judge Smith wasn't buying it. Apart from the obvious skill displayed by you, there's nothing whatsoever to admire about your conduct. And this despite the fact that in some instances you, Evan Haim, pointed out to some of the systems administrators the weaknesses of their systems and how their security might be better protected. I think this was more a display of arrogance and a demonstration of what you thought was your superiority rather than an act of altruism on your part. The TV news report that night also quoted the prosecution. Mr Maidment said this is not a person who should be regarded as a boy's own hero. The first count against Phoenix dealt with the hack of the Zardos file. Oh, Zardos was the number one win. I mean, forget Wankworm and forget about everything else. This file, which was distributed to a closed mailing list, contained information about computer vulnerabilities. Formerly known as the Security Digest List, it was given to people on a case-by-case basis, such as system administrators. These activities were typical of what you did in connection with many of the other counts. Demonstrator preparedness on your part to be openly defiant and to show that you could outsmart the system's administrators. But again, similar to Electron's sentence, Judge Smith seemed to have trouble deciding on the level of criminality. It's clear that you're highly skilled in the use of computers and that your unlawful activities weren't carried out with any profit motive, but rather to display and enhance your skills by experimenting and venturing further into what was for you undoubtedly an exciting and challenging voyage into perhaps uncharted seas. I am satisfied that there was no malicious motive. But then... Your actions were extremely foolish, fraught with potential danger to the targeted organisations and were carried out with a certain amount of arrogance. You knew full well that what you were doing was unlawful. And again, he found the prospects of rehabilitation were good. This year you commenced your present employment with a major corporation. It's clear that you're a highly regarded employee. You earn a substantial salary. Your general character is good and you have no prior convictions. And no real harm done. I'm not satisfied that any of the information to which access was gained was of a classified security type of information. Having regard to these matters, I now pronounce sentence in your case. The moment had arrived. Was Phoenix going to be the first to go to prison under these new hacking laws? Evan Haim. For each of the offences, you are convicted and sentenced to a term of imprisonment of 12 months commencing in each case today. I direct by order that you be released forthwith upon your giving security by recognizance in each instance in the sum of $1,000 to be of good behaviour for a term of 12 months. No jail time. It must have been a huge relief. Phoenix got another nine months for the remaining offences again suspended. He was also required to do 500 hours of unpaid community work. From the AFP phone taps, this one on the 21st of February 1990, we have an insight into Phoenix's version of hacker ethics. It's a winner-takes-all approach, the kind that might appeal to a savvy 19-year-old. The whole theory behind hacking is that once one person has something, anyone else can get it. I'd never destroy anything unless 
You see, the one time I've ever started destroying something is when a system administrator kicks me off his system, tapping what I do, and he's getting all my accounts and passwords which legitimately belong to me. He then kicks me off the system, then logs into my accounts on the remote system and changes them. The friend then replies, but it's his system though. You are abusing the system to begin with. That's right, I'm abusing his system. But that doesn't give him any right to come out and abuse my system. I'm not trying to justify hacking. I'm the first person to admit it's wrong. It is wrong. Another young man, 25-year-old David John Woodcock, pleaded guilty to two counts of being knowingly concerned in Evanheim's hacking activities. Finally, it was Nom's turn. Turning now to you, Woodcock, you were involved in only two of the offences. In both instances, you were charged with being accessory to the access obtained by Evanheim. Like Phoenix, Nom had landed a good job and looked like he was on the straight and narrow. You're employed as a network analyst, a position which allows your computer skills, no doubt, to be fully utilised. You earn a good salary in that position. You are convicted and sentenced to a term of imprisonment of six months commencing today. And, not surprisingly... I direct by order that you be released forthwith upon your giving security by recognizance in the sum of $500 to be of good behaviour for a period of six months. Again, these sentences made the next day's papers. Arrogant hackers escape jail. Page 13, though. By all accounts, Phoenix must have been disappointed by this. Despite such a long and groundbreaking investigation, Bill Aprow wasn't too disappointed. Look... Even though uh, Phoenix was arrogant, there was something there telling me that how far was he going to push this? I mean, you're talking this is someone, this is brand new. They had an opportunity to exploit everything. It worked. And it's probably the same as someone walks into a shop and for the first time says, oh, this is easy. I'm going to steal all the money from the cash register. Okay, it's it's serious, but not really serious, you know. Much of this evidence used by the prosecution was provided by an expert witness, Kevin Ells. Kevin was Melbourne University Department's system administrator. Remember, to hack overseas, the realm first had to get into local universities. When Bill Aprow was outside their homes watching them on their computers, he was also on the radio to Kevin who could confirm someone was hacking in at the same time. Computer scientist Jeff Houston again. The way it had been set up is that across the 80s, we developed what we call a messaging relay network, a sort of an unofficial network where universities sort of acted like send and received mail exchanges. Kevin Ells, better known as Robert or simply Cray, is remembered as the man who connected Australia to the internet. And a podcast looking into this era wouldn't be complete without detailing the part he played in bringing the internet to Australia and the role he played in prosecuting the hackers. A deal came through brokered by NASA, of all people, and their problem was they were getting or sending and funding researchers all over the planet, American researchers to work elsewhere, but they'd land up in the wild and primitive world of Australia and all of a sudden... The internet, which they'd grown addicted to over the last couple of years in the US, was no longer there. And so we kind of had offers of money, at least, to get us going from NASA, and we needed to get organised. 
Now, that messaging network that I talked about was organised by a very public-spirited man, Robert Elts, at the uh, Department of Computer Science at the University of Melbourne, who had been talking to all of our peers internationally and was a wealth of knowledge. Robert's often referred to as the father of the internet in Australia. And so when we started to sort of put in equipment and put in circuits, the University of Melbourne and, oddly enough, Robert Elts was kind of a key part of this. This connection, made via Hawaii, took place on June 23, 1989. A connection was opened up to the University of Melbourne, conducted by Robert Ells. The subject line on the first message into Australia was... Link up. And so, why Melbourne? If you had, you know, the bucket loads of money to afford an international circuit from OTC, which was on satellite at the time, cable was impossible to afford, they would... Terminate your circuit anywhere in the country for the same price. That's the government-owned Overseas Telecommunication Commission. And so we sat there and worked through the schedule of prices from Telstra, the price from OTC, and by a few dollars a month, Melbourne was cheaper. And so a network was set up where every other capital city connected directly to Melbourne because it was cheaper. And then we said, well, right, Robert, (laughs) we need to terminate a satellite circuit, you know, just near where you live. In fact, on the floor above where you are, I think, at the time. Uh, Can you help us? Oh, yeah, we can do that. And and that's why it started in Melbourne. We tried to confirm some of Robert's involvement with these court cases and finally found him working overseas. He wrote back, I have an intense dislike of journalists as a breed, and they generally dislike me just as much. I took his response as a no to an interview. But prosecution documents presented to the court detail his involvement in the investigation. For example, it was Robert Elzer's investigation of the files found on Nom's computer which proved he had assisted Phoenix. After months of investigating the realm's hacking exploits, the one thing that intrigued me the most was this. They disappeared. After earning a reputation for being some of the best in the world, Electron, Phoenix and Nom vanished. They were unlike hackers in the US. Eric Bloodaxe went on to work in cybersecurity for various companies as a consultant and regular speaker. Kevin Mitnick, who went to jail six times for his hacking exploits, established a successful cybersecurity career and even now still pops up occasionally on TV talk shows. Robert Morris, author of The Morris Worm, became an entrepreneur and even has a programming language used by Yahoo named after him, the RTML, Robert T. Morris language. And I first saw Steve Stevens on a national talk show about hacking. The Melbourne hackers from the realm that we did manage to get in touch with didn't want to talk about their hacking adventures, and they've opted out of public life since. I asked Sulet Dreyfus why. No, they're totally private people. You know, they really are very, very private people. Um, And they have ego, but not in the same way, you know, as uh, Kevin Mitnick would have. They just, um, they don't want to be out in the spotlight. Um, and, and that isn't just a risk thing, right? Because if they've already appeared in court and they've had charges and they've pled guilty, I mean, it's out, right? So you could make a buck off it, but no, nah, it wouldn't, wouldn't occur to them. I also asked Bill Apro what his take was on this reluctance by the Realm members to seek publicity for their online adventures. If, if you have a look at the aftermath, Phoenix did quieten down. So we're not talking someone that went back 
and used what he information he had, exploited and went to do more damage. He actually stopped. And Electron, did he stop too? He, he stopped it. Everybody stopped. The computer people in the computer world, I don't want to offend them all because not all of them were the same, but a lot of them were introverts. And you know, introverts, that, uh, that type of person, if you stomp on them, they're finished. It, it doesn't matter how arrogant you are. But the introvert type arrogant person is a different kettle of fish here. I mean, they're, they're going to then quieten down. Not all of them, not all of them, but I had a suspicion that Phoenix would. Because once the realm was busted, to some degree, their hacking, the pinnacle of their hacking was frozen in time. The party was kind of over. It's like being an elite athlete, you know, you're trying for your best time and once you break a bone, you're not really going to ever get back to that best time again. This investigation was a first for the Australian Federal Police as well, and they were proud of their success. The conviction during 1993 of three computer hackers has proved a milestone for computer crime investigation in Australia. There was a big write-up in the AFP's Platypus magazine outlining the investigation and the resulting sentences. Bill Lapro had left before the sentence hearings. The article was written by another AFP officer, Ken Day. Ken would go on to head up the next investigation into another hacking group which was attracting a lot of attention. The international subversives, there was overlap in time, but the international subversives were a little later, a little newer, a little edgier, a little more risk-taking, I think, in their hacking. Sitting in the courtroom, watching Phoenix and Nom's sentence, was a hacker from international subversives. They were willing to get into more US military sites in particular, and they were willing to... Go deeper, stay longer. His online name was Cathonica V, a.k.a. Mendax. And they weren't afraid to go in and grasp power rather than just observe. His real name was Julian Assange. We went to the dragon's cave while I was asleep very quickly and pissed in the corner and then left. Yes, he was there. Oh, of course. Um, he was like, he's sitting in the background, okay? He's he's watching, just looking at what's going on. We had a back door in the US military security coordination center. This is the peak security, controlling the security of Milnet, the US military uh, internet. Um, The total control over this for two years. next episode, we look into how another group of Melbourne hackers, led by Julian Assange, took things to the next level. And we explore the beginnings of Assange's rise from suburban computer hacker to a global disruptor. Assange could then gain what's called root access, meaning the whole computer opened up to him and he could walk around like God Almighty. Motherlode is a Renierian Co. original production. 
Written and researched by me, Greg Muller. Sound design and editing by Martin Peralta. Executive producer, Lucy Kent. And consulting producer, Siobhan McHugh. The words of Judge Smith, read by Lyle Brooks. Thanks for listening and give us a review if you can. And if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us at motherload at rainierianco.com.